I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 50 for our message today entitled, The Sovereign Shepherd. The Sovereign Shepherd. Genesis 50 verse 20 is our text for today, and it is the theological conclusion of the account of Joseph's life which is presented to us from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. Genesis 50.20 is the divine explanation for all the injustice that came upon Joseph. And this explanation reveals to us one of the greatest mysteries of divine sovereignty that has life-shaping implications for our lives. Now it's helpful that we're in the midst of reading through the account of Joseph's life as we make our way through Genesis, and we will conclude that reading somewhere around the end of September. And so my hope is that by having studied this passage today, as we continue to read through Joseph's life over the next couple months, that we will be reminded of these truths week in and week out, which will help cement them into our souls. So if you're there at Genesis 50, Follow along as I read verses 15 to 21 for context, and then we'll zero in on verse 20. The Word of the God says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father had died or was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you have that memorized yet? That quote from A.W. Tozer? My hope is that by the end of this series that you will have that memorized if you don't already. And you say, well, how many messages do I have to to get that down. I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure it'll be enough that you'll be able to memorize it just by hearing it week after week. I am zealous for you to have that quote memorized. Number one, because it's a great quote. I use it many times a week, every week when I'm talking to people. But more than that, I am zealous for you and I to have the truth that is stated there gripped in our souls so that you will want to grow in your knowledge of God. In Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul says, he prays rather that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As Paul prayed for these beloved saints in the city of Colossae, and he told them to have that uh, letter read in the Laodicea and other cities. His prayer was that they would grow in the knowledge of God. And in this passage, from the lips of Joseph, we read truth about God that should shape our interpretation about everything in life. Namely, that everything that happens in your life and mine God intends for good. Everything that happens in your life, God intends 
for good. Therefore, you can trust him and you can walk in faith and obedience, even if you have no idea what God is up to. Now we can amen verse 20 because we see so clearly how this worked out in Joseph's life. As we read from Genesis 37 on, we we see injustice after disappointment, after unmet expectation, after desertion. And we say, as we read, it's okay. God is working out his good plan because we see it in the text and we've heard it so many times. Where we struggle, though, is acknowledging this truth in our own life. You see, we're more like Jacob. When our hopes and our expectations are unfulfilled, when life comes crashing down on us, we don't tend to respond like Joseph. We tend to respond like Jacob. Turn back with me just a few pages to chapter 42. We read this last week. This is Jacob's response when life came crashing down on him. This is Jacob's response when the brothers came back from Egypt that first trip. And Jacob hears that Simeon has been put in prison. And the brothers want to take Benjamin, his youngest son, back to Egypt. He says in chapter 42, verse 36, Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. It's been over 20 years since Jacob lost Joseph and the grief was still fresh. They've been suffering a devastating famine and now this imprisonment of Simeon compounds the feeling of loss and bereavement. So the the thought of losing Benjamin is just too much. That's why he refuses to let Benjamin go and is even willing to risk starvation. Jacob allowed his losses to blind him to the goodness of God. The Lord had promised Jacob back in chapter 35, verse 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. The Lord made promises, which Jacob was now struggling to remember considering his circumstances. As we saw last week, Abraham When he was confused about the promise of God and the command of God and how those two things could fit together, he he wrestled in his soul, but he ultimately concluded that God can really do the impossible. Perhaps if Jacob took the time to wrestle with God now, as he did when he was younger, he would have come to a similar resolve. Namely, that God works in ways that defy our expectations. Well, as it turns out, Jacob did finally come to that conclusion, but he didn't do so as a point of conviction based on faith. He came to the conviction that the Lord was behind everything in his life only after he saw what God was really up to. He saw it with his own eyes and he finally acknowledged that God had been with him and for him All along, turn forward to chapter 48, verse 15. Chapter 48, verse 15. This is important because it'll not only explain why I've I've entitled this message the Sovereign Shepherd, but it reminds us of how we often are the same as Jacob. By the time we get to Genesis 48, Jacob has lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. And he knows he's at the end of his life, so he's getting his affairs in order, which includes saying his goodbyes to his family and blessing his sons and his grandsons. And so he says, as he's talking to Joseph here in chapter 48, verse 15, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless 
the lads and may my name live on in them in the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. But you see that there in verse 15, the second line, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Jacob was a shepherd. He grew up more domestic and more of a homebody while his brother Esau was a, a man of the field. But when Jacob fled from Esau out of his deception, he worked for Laban, his uncle, for over 20 years as a shepherd. And that ended up becoming the family business that they carried on the rest of their lives. So Jacob was intimately acquainted with what it means to be a shepherd. You can probably boil down the job of shepherding to two primary responsibilities. One, shepherds lead their sheep to pastures where they can feed. And second, shepherds protect their flock from harm. If you ask a sheep at any given moment what their shepherd is up to, if they could talk, what they would tell you is, I have no idea. All I know is the shepherd, we stop and we eat and then he calls us and we go. And I just submit to his crook and I submit to his call, but I have no idea what the shepherd's doing at any given moment. Well, as Jacob looks back on his life, he sees now how the Lord has led him from pasture to pasture to pasture and how all along the way the Lord has protected him from evil. Now, did he suffer at times? Yes, of course he suffered. He suffered as a result of his own sin and deceiving Esau. He suffered as a result of the sins of others, such as when Joseph was taken from him for over 20 years. But through it all, the Lord was with him, shepherding him. Joseph and Jacob came to the same conclusion. But Jacob arrived there only when he saw the purposes of God all come together. He walked by sight. As we'll see today in Genesis 50, verse 20, even though that's at the end of the story, Joseph had long before trusted that God was at work in his life. Joseph walked by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 reminds us that as believers in Christ, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so whatever is going on in your life, or whatever's coming around the corner that you can't see yet, my prayer is that we will all leave this place with a greater understanding of God as our sovereign shepherd. And in knowing God as our sovereign shepherd, we will be better equipped to respond to the circumstances of life by trusting in Him. So let's turn back then to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, to grow in our knowledge of God. What we learn in this text is the doctrine of divine concurrence. Divine concurrence is the doctrine most clearly stated in this passage that God's activity works concurrently with man's activity. Put another way, God does not respond to man in a way that He turns something into good. Now that would make God the cosmic or the divine reactor. But God is the divine actor. He acts on the basis of His will. And so through one and the same act on earth, God is accomplishing good, while at the very same time, man is accomplishing evil. Specific to our text, the act of selling Joseph into slavery was the will of his brothers who had evil motivations, and at the same time, it was the will of God who had good motivations. Beloved, please listen carefully. The Lord does not turn evil things into good things. No, the good will of God and the evil will of man work in parallel such that we can say what man intends for my harm, God intends for my good. This is the doctrine of divine concurrence. And it's what the Holy Spirit reveals in this text. 
We'll walk through this passage under two headings, simply man's responsibility first, and then secondly, God's sovereignty. Consider man's responsibility. Look at verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. The word meant means to weave, to interlace, such as to weave reeds together to make a basket or to weave threads together to make a garment. But it's only used figuratively in Scripture to talk about uh, weaving thoughts together to make a plan or to devise a scheme or to have a purpose. It can be used in a variety of ways, both positively and negatively. And in this verse, you can see that it's used twice, once negative and once positive. Consider the first use. Joseph says here, you meant evil against me. You had evil intentions and motivations behind your actions. And indeed they did. We know from Genesis 37 verse 4, which tells us that when Joseph was 17, his brothers hated him. And they could not speak to him, it says, on friendly terms. Why? Because Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons. Joseph was the favorite son of the favorite wife. And his brothers hated him for that. To make matters worse, Joseph had a dream where his brothers ostensibly would bow down to him and he just felt compelled to tell his brothers about it. And so it says in verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he had another dream where not only his brothers, but even his parents would bow down to him. And it says his brothers were jealous of him. Later, when Joseph was sent to check on his brothers who were shepherding far away from home, they saw an opportunity. And Scripture says, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Reuben, the oldest brother, manipulated the conversation out of an attempt to rescue Joseph from death. And his suggestion was they throw him in the pit before they kill him which is what they did. And, and then as they continued to discuss, what do we do with Joseph? We can't just leave him in a pit, can we? Well, as they were having this conversation, they saw a caravan of merchants uh, coming through and Judah had the idea that, hey, let's benefit from this situation financially. Let's sell Joseph as a slave. And that's exactly what they did. Hatred, jealousy, and greed came together with an opportunity to be rid of this brother forever. These 10 brothers were motivated by evil. They hated Joseph. They hated that he was the favorite son. They hated that he seemed to relish in being the favorite. If you're wondering, how could they even think about killing their brother? Years earlier, a young man in the city of Shechem took advantage of their sister Dinah, raping her. And in response, Simeon and Levi murdered all the men of that town. So at least some of the brothers had murderous hearts, but other brothers who hated Joseph just as much tempered that and rescued him from the sentence of death while still getting him out of their lives. For his part, Joseph knew what his brothers thought of him. This wasn't a, a minor or an occasional squabble among brothers. Uh, Joseph knew where he stood in their eyes. There's no indication he was afraid of them, but there was no mistaking their hatred. But when he showed up in the fields of Dothan and they, their hatred turned to violence and he heard their scheming of what they wanted to do with him, he learned just how deep their hatred went. And so their hearts were revealed and he carried that pain of their hatred with him into Egypt. If Joseph was a normal person like us, and he was, he thought of that day every day. He pictured their faces. He rehearsed their words in his mind time and time again. He was powerless against the hatred of ten brothers. He was powerless being sold as a slave to undo the evil that had been done to him. The injustice that was perpetrated against him was such that there was no going back to life as it was. He went from being the favored son to human chattel. 
The hatred of his brothers landed him in a foreign land who, with the people who spoke foreign language and who treated him as property. And some might say that's a sentence worse than death. As Joseph, as Joseph traveled to Egypt, as he was sold in the slave market, as he struggled to learn that new language and customs, as he was falsely accused and sent into prison, as he was forgotten by those who, whom he helped, I have no doubt that the evil intentions of his brothers kept coming back to him again and again and again. And here in Genesis 50, 17 years after their reunion and reconciliation, both he and his brothers are freshly reminded of their evil intentions. In acknowledging their evil motives, Joseph affirms their culpability. He didn't sweep away their sin under the rug as if it didn't happen. He didn't minimize it as if it wasn't a big deal, nor did he excuse it. No, he called it what it was. Evil. It wasn't good. It was evil. The scripture never redefines, minimizes, or excuses sin. And when we do that, we're rejecting God's mind on the matter. A good outcome doesn't alter the sinfulness of an act. One who was sinfully motivated in their actions should never console their conscience because their evil led to something good. No, evil is evil and it will always be evil. God's sovereign hand over evil does not make it good. Again, divine concurrence does not turn evil into good. Evil does not get lost or forgotten in the good outcome. Joseph affirms here the wickedness of their actions and their evil motives that were behind their actions. This is man's responsibility. There's no escaping it. We are culpable for the sins that we commit and we can't make any excuses. Next we see God's sovereignty. First, Joseph alludes or speaks of man's responsibility. Then he speaks of God's sovereignty. Look again at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God. Stop there. But God. Take note of the fact that in the very same breath of speaking of his brother's sin, Joseph is quick to bring God into the conversation. Joseph has long understood that God is always at work in the affairs of men. In chapter 39, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, he responded to her by saying, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns into my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. He has not withheld anything from me except you because you are his wife. Listen to this. How then could I do this great evil and sin against who? God. Here's Joseph's logic. God blessed me. God gave me these responsibilities. God has given me this authority. So to take what does not belong to me would be a sin against God. Years later, when he was in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker found themselves on the wrong end of Pharaoh's disposition. And they were thrown into prison and they both had portentous dreams which bothered them and they desperately wanted interpretations. And so Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now, we don't know if Joseph ever interpreted dreams as a matter of course, other than the obvious dreams that he had when he was a teenager, but he clearly believed that he could be a channel through which the Lord would reveal the interpretation. And sure enough, God gave him the right insight to accurately interpret their dreams. Years later, he stands before Pharaoh as Pharaoh wanted an interpretation for his dreams. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And he hears Pharaoh's dreams, and Joseph begins his interpretation by saying, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Then he explains to Pharaoh about the seven years of prosperity and the seven years of famine. And then he says this, Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God. 
and God will quickly bring it about. Joseph didn't just tell Pharaoh about the turn of events. He made it clear that God was behind the interpretation and God was behind the years of plenty and God was behind the years of famine. Years later, when the Lord blessed Joseph with a child, Joseph said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And then he had a second child and he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So time and time again, Joseph recognized the the hand of God behind everything from work responsibilities to dreams to agricultural phenomenon to babies. God's fingerprints are on everything that happens. And the rest of Scripture agrees with this truth. In Exodus 4, which we'll look at in a few weeks, God commissions Moses to go rescue the people out of Egypt. But Moses resists, and he tries to disqualify himself by saying, God, I don't speak as well as a leader ought to speak. And so the Lord says to him in verse 11 of Exodus 4, Who made man's mouth, or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? His point was to say that he would empower Moses to speak as well as he needed to to accomplish the task. But he made that point on the basis that he is the one who is responsible for the abilities and the disabilities of people. In Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7, the Lord says of himself, I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. The Lord doesn't say there, I allow these things to happen. He doesn't say that they just happen under his watchful eye. No, he says he does these things. We started the sermon series in the book of Job, where we learn in chapter one that Satan caused Job to lose everything in his life almost. His children by a windstorm, some animals by marauders, other animals by fire from heaven. And Job's instinctual response is to fall to the ground and worship, saying, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The author of Job, who has the insight of what was going on in heaven, does not say, and God took offense that Job blamed him for those things. No, the author writes, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And by blaming God, he means charge God with wrongdoing. Later in the book, in chapters 38 to 41, we have the Lord's declaration of his personal involvement in all creation, from the way that he designed animals, to weather patterns, to feeding animals in the wild. There is nothing that takes place in creation for which God does not take responsibility. This is the reality of God's sovereignty, that that He has rule and authority over all created things. And this is also the reality of His providence, which is that He moves history toward its ultimate end by superintending over the events of human activity. So it is theologically accurate to look at a tornado and say, God is behind that. It is theologically accurate to look at a car accident and say, God is behind that. It is theologically accurate to look at sickness and disease and say, God is behind that. It is theologically accurate to look at human injustice and say that God is behind that. Now, that's not the only thing we can say or should say. We, where it applies, we should affirm human responsibility for the words and actions of people. And where it applies, we should affirm the, the normal functioning of the created order. We can rightly affirm that a person said this or that they did that, but divine concurrence teaches that whatever happens as a result of the intentions of people, or whatever happens as a result of the normal functioning of the created order, God is working in parallel to accomplish His purposes. 
Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, if God was malicious or capricious or undependable or constantly changing, that would be a frightening reality. But an all-powerful God, or, or rather an all-powerful God who is, whose will is unpredictable would be terrorizing. But that is not what God is like. Look again at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God meant it for good. At the same time that his brothers acted with intentions for evil, God's providential hand was at work with intentions for good. Please take notice of what the text does not say. It does not say that what the brothers did was good. No, Joseph does not mean to say that their evil actions in and of themselves were good. He means to say that God worked through their evil actions to accomplish His good purpose, namely to preserve many people alive. Now turn back just a few pages to chapter 50 to see that this is not the first time Joseph has come to this conclusion. Genesis chapter 45, I think I said 50, didn't I? Genesis chapter 45 is when Joseph is revealing himself to his brothers for the first time. And we see here that at that point, uh, Joseph had already come to the conclusion of God's good purpose. Look at verses 5 to 8 of Genesis 45. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourself, Joseph says, because you sold me here for, listen to this, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over the land of Egypt. Again, affirming God's hand over everything. Joseph did not believe that God was surprised by his brother's actions and scrambled to come up with some kind of good that he could make out of the situation. No, he said, it was not you who sent me here, but God. That the hatred in their hearts motivated their actions, which were the immediate cause of Joseph's journey to Egypt, God worked in and through them to accomplish His plan, which they could not imagine. Now, what Joseph doesn't seem to have understood quite yet at this point is that the greater purpose beyond saving lives that God was fulfill, is that God was fulfilling one of the promises that He had made to Abraham. Uh, though the Lord promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, the Lord promised this also to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. He said, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. It doesn't seem that Joseph understood that his life was the, the beginning of God's fulfilling this particular promise. And this helps us to recognize that while there are times that in the unfolding of our lives, we might be able to look back and see some of what God is doing, there is always more that we cannot see and that we will not see until we see Christ face to face. But Joseph didn't need to know everything. He he didn't need to know everything that God was doing in order to trust him and follow him in faith and obedience. Joseph recognize that God is the great shepherd and that while there is mystery to what God is doing, that confusion is in us, not in God. Again, the passage of time may reveal details of what the Lord is up to, but Joseph didn't need those details to live faithfully for the Lord. 
The suffering and injustice that Joseph experienced was not good in and of itself. It was evil. But it was all part of God's good purpose. The New Testament parallel to Genesis 50-20 is Romans 8-28. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Notice again there that also in Romans 8.28, it does not call everything good. Nor does it say that God responds to what happens and figures out some good to make out of it. No, there is divine intention behind all things. And that divine intention is to bring about a good result for those who love God. And what is that good result? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, his son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Because our lives intersect with the lives of many others, God has purposes beyond what we can comprehend that he's accomplishing through any given event in our lives. But the overarching purpose of all things in the lives of those who love God is that He is seeking to make them more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And and the reason that He's seeking to make them more and more like Christ is so that Christ would be exalted as the one worthy of honor and glory and power. My friends, divine concurrence is the doctrine of God's will working alongside man's will and the created order to accomplish His good purposes. It's about as close as Scripture gets to directly addressing the question of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works together. But more than that, it is the glorious doctrine that whatever intent people may have in the sinful actions that they commit and the evil motives behind them, God intends those things for good. To bring about a good result in your life and in the unfolding of His good plan for all things. Well, now that we've come to an understanding of divine concurrence, we can consider some of the implications of this truth about God for our lives. There are many, but I'm just going to give you three this morning. The first implication of this truth about God is that we are not God. Therefore, Listen to this. Therefore, don't sit in his chair. We see this implication even in our text of Genesis chapter 50. As Jake, uh, Joseph begins to speak to his brothers, he says in verse 19, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Joseph's brothers were afraid of retribution. They thought Joseph had been biding his time and now with Jacob dead that Joseph would exact revenge on his brothers. But Joseph knew that God is sovereign and that he is just and that he will exact his justice at the proper time. And so he didn't need to take it upon himself to get back at them. This is the principle of Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where the scripture says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He overcame the evil of his brothers by providing for them, caring for them, giving them a land to live in, blessing them, forgiving them, showing kindness to them. When people do evil to us, we want to squeeze into God's seat and hand down verdicts and punishments. But we are not in God's place. He alone is the judge. Paul says in Romans 14, 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So beloved, let God be God. And you do what God gives you the privilege of doing. 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Show kindness to those who seek to harm you. Overcome evil with good. The second implication of this doctrine is that as we go through the trials of life, we must not despair, but remember that God is good, even if we can't fathom how in the moment. In his book, Therefore I Have Hope, Pastor Cameron Cole tells a story of how he was camping with a group of, I think it was his youth group or something like that in his church. When he got a call from his wife, who told him that their young son had died in his sleep. His knee-jerk reaction was to say these words to his wife. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that means that God is good. This doesn't change that fact. He had an unshakable confidence in the goodness of God. That didn't mean that the death of his son was good. And certainly he grieved and sorrowed and struggled in his soul. And he writes about that in the book. But he hung on to that reality that God is good and was doing good, even in the face of this tragedy. Our dear sister, Sue Leek, has long had in her email signature, Psalm 119.68, You are good and do good. And when her beloved husband, our founding pastor Tom, died, she didn't change that signature. He is still good, and he does good. When you come along, a brother or a sister, in the moment of tragedy, that, that's usually not the right time to try and cheer them up with the truth of God's goodness. It's better in that intense moment to weep with those who weep and to sit in silence with those who sorrow. But the time will come when we can affirm that though it's a mystery to us what God is up to, He is indeed doing something good. And so how necessary is it for us when you're not in that intense moment to let this truth of God's goodness take deep root in our soul so that we will be anchored to it when that storm hits? Well, a final implication I want to draw out for you today is that we must submit to God's good purpose to shepherd us through everything that happens to our lives. We must submit to God's good purpose to shepherd us through everything that happens in our lives. We are his sheep, and sometimes he leads us by still waters, and other times he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not ours to discover in the moment where he's leading us or why. It's only ours to submit to his leading. Paul writes in Romans 5, 3-5, We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and per perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's not wrong to cry out to God with questions in our confusion. And we see that as we read the Psalms of lament, such as Psalm 10 and Psalm 13 and many others. But when we open our eyes and we get off our knees, we can get up and step forward in faith and obedience, whatever it looks like in that moment. We can trust God even if we can't understand Him. And when God brings us beside those still waters and gives us peace and joy and success and blessing, rather than seeing that as a time to just live for ourselves, we should consider that as an opportunity to consider how this state of blessing can be used by the Lord to minister and be a blessing to others. How might the Lord use your resources to further his kingdom? How might the Lord use your time to mentor a younger person? How might the Lord use your wisdom to counsel someone who's struggling? And we don't wait to serve until we're out of suffering. Otherwise, we'd never do that. But we're in, when we're in a season of blessing, we have an opportunity to increase our service to the Lord and to others. 
I don't remember who said this that I heard one time, but it's a profound thought that when we see Christ face to face and we have a new heavenly perspective, we will be able in that moment to look back on our whole life and we will agree with God that everything that he did was good. We will see with crystal clarity that the Lord has been our shepherd all our life and that all the good we experienced and all the suffering we endured was all part of his plan to draw us to himself and to conform us to the image of Christ and to move history forward toward its intended end, which is bringing all glory to Christ. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I want to close this message by looking briefly at another passage that teaches divine concurrence. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish leaders and charged not to preach the gospel, but because they feared the people, the Jewish leaders let Peter and John go. And so Peter and John go straight to the church and report what happened. And hearing the report, the church collectively lifts up a, a corporate prayer saying these words. Look at verses 27, excuse me, 27 to 28. They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders conspired together against Christ. But notice again, he says in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now we know that those who set themselves against Christ had no idea about God's plan of redemption. They, they didn't have God's heavenly book of decrees. They weren't following a script. They operated out of the evil intentions of their heart. The Jewish leaders operated out of their jealousy and uh, jealousy of Jesus and their fear of losing their position. The crowd operated out of their fickle hearts uh, and fearing the Jewish leaders and the impact of following Christ might have on their community relationships. Pilate operated out of his political self-interest. Everyone approached the murder of Christ with genuine and sinful desires in their heart. But that was precisely the means by which God's eternal plan of redemption was accomplished. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And just as Jacob's family was saved as a result of divine concurrence that brought much suffering into Joseph's life, Beloved, you and I are saved by the result of divine concurrence that brought suffering and death to Christ. As the perfect man, Jesus had this at the forefront of his mind as he endured his suffering. We see this in the garden as he cried out to the Father in the full knowledge that what was going to take place was the Father's will. When the soldiers arrested him, Jesus said, all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. When speaking to Pilate, he said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And as he hung on the cross, he kept saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the middle of his excruciating pain, he had pity on those who did not understand the role they were playing in the bigger picture. It was the truth that God is accomplishing good through his suffering that empowered Jesus to endure. So Hebrews 12.2 tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the, th of the throne of God. 
Jesus endured the cross because He knew the outcome, the joy set before Him was the salvation of His people. And three days later, He rose from the grave. And 40 days later, He ascended into heaven where He now sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for us to leave this world where we sojourn and to come to the place that He has prepared for us. Amen? Let's pray. And as we pray, the men can come to prepare for the supper. Our God, there is clarity in the Scripture. You've given us sufficient truth here to know what it is that You have said. But we acknowledge that there is still much mystery. There are questions that this raises in our minds which You have chosen in Your wisdom not to answer in Your Word. But You have given this to us so that we might live according to this truth. So that we might trust You no matter what comes our way. Lord, there are many who are suffering intensely right now. There's broken homes, broken marriages. There's sickness and chronic pain. There's heartache of all kinds. We may not understand why you're allowing the suffering to persist and the brokenness to get worse. But Lord, may we affirm in our hearts that you are good. And may we anticipate that day when we will look back with clarity and affirm again, you were good and you shepherded us through that pain. And Lord, if we are in a season of blessing and joy, let us fix this truth in our hearts so that when suffering comes or when we have opportunity to minister to someone else in their suffering, that we would speak the truth in love and compassion and point ourselves and others to the reality of who you are. We ask these things so that you would be glorified in our lives. For the sake of Christ, amen.